and have some of these words that Paul has written thousands of years ago stick with us in a way that carries on to the rest of our week. And so what I'm going to do before I start is just pray, and particularly just pray that as I, as I speak about these things here, that, that God would actually be speaking to all of us through his word. That as we come along, just like every single week, I'm sure that for different ones of us, there's all kinds of different things going on in our head. Uh, Things that are distracting us, things that are bothering us and worrying us. And I'm just going to pray now to to ask that God to be with us in setting aside this time, even just for half an hour, to have our attention fully devoted on God and what he has to say to us. That the words that he has for us in his word would affect our our whole lives. So if um, if you'd like, just pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you now as people who, who fall short in so many ways. Uh, all week long, we, we fill our minds with concerns and, and worries and, and things that are just so, so small compared to you. And I just pray as we come to your word, uh, which is your word, it is you speaking to us, that we'll be ready to listen. I pray that I wouldn't just be going through the motions in, in speaking and, and talking and just getting through it, and that no one in this room in, in listening would, uh, would just be waiting for it just to end or, or to get out and get on with life, but that in this time, you would quieten our hearts, we would hear from you, we'd be convicted of this truth, and it would actually shape our lives for the good of, of this city and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder if you've ever had the experience of meeting someone who just, you could just tell that they thought they were better than you. As someone who, in whatever reason, just oozes this sense that because of their, their looks or their intelligence or their job or their place in society, that they're just above you. I think um, one of the times I can think of this happening, in the first year of City Light, I worked as a bartender down at the Exchange Hotel for about a year. And as anyone in, in hospitality or has worked in hospitality would know, that a lot of people are quite nice, but maybe like one in ten people who come in just, just kind of have this sense that because you're working at this particular moment for them, they can just treat you however they want. Um, I remember this one particular night. There was, there was a guy who was a, in his mid-40s. Um, he came in and he kind of took up with his friends this little kind of couch area in the pub and started demanding that I would bring him and his friends drinks. And we didn't even offer table service. They were meant to come to the bar, but he just had this sense now, like, bring him here, bring him here. You'd take him his drinks, he wouldn't look you in the, in the eye, he wouldn't say thank you. It was just this sense that he was just better than me. And, and I think a few of the people I was working with felt this. And, and this night I remember it because it had the most satisfying ending it could possibly have had. Um, this guy, after a whole night of just kind of rudeness and, and arrogance and the rest of it, he, he left the pub, walked outside, and about a minute later walked back in and demanded to speak to the manager, who we, who we got to come down and chat to him. And what had happened is the Exchange Hotel, it, it's a two-story pub. It's got this big balcony um, along, along the top side. This guy had parked his BMW just outside. Someone on the top had had a little bit too much to drink and had thrown up over the balcony <laughs> all over his BMW. And, um, and there was nothing we could do about it. Uh, he just had to kind of he had to deal with it. And it was satisfying because when, when you see someone, when you see someone who just... You just sense, senses that they're better than you. You just love to see them get knocked down a peg. And the, and the reason is, I think amongst all the kind of traits people can have, this, um, this sense of pride, this, this passage calls it a bunch of things. It calls it, um, calls it being judgmental or, or boastful or proud or puffed up. 
when you see someone like this, um, we just can't stand it. Amongst all of the, the, the various things that are unattractive about Donald Trump, I think one of the ones that stands out for most people is this sense that no matter what it is, he acts like he's better than everyone, that he knows more, he understands more, he's stronger, he's smarter, he's more powerful, he's the best with money, he's everything. And it's arrogant. When we have bosses that, that we work for and they, and they kind of in the way that they lead, they, they give off the sense that they're superior and they're better, we, we, we resent them, we don't respect them. In fact, there was a study of the um, top most successful businesses in America done in 2001 and it showed that, that the leaders that were most respected and most effective were ones who were described by their employees as being humble and self-effacing and modest. See, we, we don't like boasting, we don't like pride, we don't like arrogance. And I think anyone, if you got asked, would you rather be kind of humble and, and someone who doesn't look down at people, you'd say yes. But despite this, I'm sure there's not a single person in this room for whom there isn't maybe a person or a group of people that you, you sometimes just can't help feeling that you're better than them. We live in a world where, where people are, are comparing and looking down at each other all the time. For, what, for where they live, where they come from, what they wear, what they put on social media. We live in a culture where it's easy to be proud and we're often even encouraged to look down on other people to make ourselves feel good. And it's this idea that Paul, the writer of this book, 1 Corinthians, is speaking into. He's writing specifically to a group of Christians in a city called Corinth who are proud. Over the last few weeks looking through, we've seen that they're particularly proud for a few reasons. They think that they're wise, um, that they've got a better grasp of reality and of the way things are than anyone else around them. They're proud because they think they've got the best leaders, the most impressive people kind of working for them and leading them. And they're proud because they think they're eloquent, that they've got the best words, the best way of speaking. And in particular, they think because of this that Paul, the guy writing this, is inferior. And so what Paul is doing in this chapter, after a few chapters already of, of kind of addressing this issue, he kind of concludes his argument here. And what he does is he comes in with this kind of three-point smackdown on the Corinthians' pride. Three truths that are meant to absolutely demolish any sense that the Corinthians have any reason to boast, any reason to look down on him at all. And, and that's what we're going to be working through today. It's just three truths that Paul lays out, I think, quite clearly here that show that anyone who gets these truths, which is namely any Christian has no grounds for pride, has no grounds for boasting whatsoever. And so we're going to be walking through these now. The first thing that Paul says, the first truth he wants to get across as to why a Christian person can, can never judge, can never be boastful, never be proud, is that only God is in a position to judge. If, if, if you've listened, missed the last few weeks, like I was saying, Paul has been, has been judged again and again by the Corinthians. He's been judged as unworthy, as inferior, as not good enough. And his response to hearing that this group of people have made this judgment about him is to say this. It'll come up on the screen. From verse 3, Paul writes, It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. 
So just leaving that up there, look at, looking at what Paul does here, he's had this, this thing happen where there's this whole group of people looking down on him and judging him. And his first response to this is to say, what you make of me doesn't matter. Your judgment is irrelevant. What you say about me, what you think about me, it does not matter at all. Because at the end of the day, the only opinion that matters, the only judgment that really matters is what God says. Often the advice that little kids get, you know, when they're getting picked on or bullied or people saying nasty things about them at school, is to say to the kid, you know, it doesn't matter what everyone else is saying about you. It doesn't matter what they think of you. All that matters is, is if you're happy with yourself. It's, all that matters is what you think of yourself. But Paul goes one step further than that. He's even saying, look, it doesn't even matter what I think of myself. It doesn't matter what I make of me. The only thing that really matters at the end of the day is what God thinks. Because God can see us and he knows us in a way that no one else can. Earlier this week, um, I injured my hand when I, was, when I tripped over when I was playing a game of netball. Now, when I went to the doctor and they asked how I tripped over, I said I was playing basketball. Um, <laughs> I didn't plan to lie, but at, you know, the doctor was a bit older and different generation. Maybe he's not aware that, that in, our, in our society, men can play netball too. So I was just embarrassed, and I said I was playing basketball. Um, but I want to come clean. I felt bad. This is my confession. Uh, I play netball, and I'm proud. Uh, and, and, but anyway, uh, yeah, after this game, I just tripped over, smacked my hand on the ground, went to bed with what I thought was a bit of a sprained wrist. But I woke up the next, the next morning, and my, my ring finger was quite swollen still, and I felt it, and I found I had this weird lump, like a ball bearing in my finger that wasn't there before. And I think, that's really weird. Compared with my other hand, I was like, yep, that hand doesn't have this thing. So I made my way to the hospital. And um, I went in, saw the nurse. The nurse said, look, I don't think it's broken, but you can see the doctor if you want. I said, great. Saw the doctor. The doctor said, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's broken. Go and get an x-ray. Went and had an x-ray. When, and then they made me sit around for two hours, because apparently everyone else went and had lunch, and no one told me it was lunchtime. So I just kind of sat through waiting. But I'm still a bit bitter about that. <laughs> but eventually the doctor came and got me, brought me back in. And we sat down at her desk and she said, look, let's have a look at this x-ray together. And so she pulled it up on the screen. And I love x-rays. I'll, I'll look at, if anyone ever breaks a bone, gets an x-ray, CT scan, whatever, about anything, show it to me. I just love looking at them. And we're going through it. And she was showing me these close-ups of all the kind of bones in, in my hand. And there's actually a lot of bones in your hand. Who would have thought? And, and, and what you can see with this detail is just absolutely everything in there. She could show me like different cracks where I'd broken my hand probably like 10 years ago and how it's healed and that kind of thing. But it was obvious when we looked at the x-ray and actually looked at the, the area that I said was sore that there was no break. There was, kind of, there was no debating it. You look at it, it's just super clear. The bone is there. It's all good. And what happened was as soon as you see that, it becomes completely irrelevant what you're thinking or what you're feeling about whether your hand's broken or not. At that point, it's no good to say, oh, but you know, I feel like it's broken or it's different on this hand than how it is on this hand. The x-ray sees through it all. The best that, that I'm able to do is just kind of compare how they're feeling and just kind of go off my gut. The doctor's even kind of worse off because she doesn't even know how I'm feeling. She's just kind of looking at it. But with the x-ray, the objective reality is revealed. And it's just, it's just so much surpasses any opinion about how my hand is. What Paul is saying is that in the same way, when, when we judge people or form our views on people, we are so limited in what we can do. When we are forming a view on others and working out kind of where to place them, the best way we can really do is to compare. It's to compare how, do, how does this person shape up compared to me or how do I shape up compared to them 
Or how do they shape up to these people over here? It's just comparison. We do this horizontal kind of weighing people up. And, and one of the issues is, with this is that it doesn't actually really give you any degree of certainty as to how someone is. Um, psychologists talk about this phenomenon called um, illusory superiority, which is basically that across a whole range of areas, mostly to do with performance, people vastly overestimate how they are compared to other people. So apparently 93% of drivers say that they're in the top 50% of driving ability. Now, I know I'm in the top 50% of driving ability, but a bunch of people are getting it wrong, obviously. 90% of lecturers at a university level say that their lectures are in the top 50% of quality. And so, and just obviously it cannot be. And the reason this happens is because when people are kind of weighing things out, they find the worst examples to compare themselves to. And, and in particular, men overrepresent even more than women in all of these areas. And, th- and this is true of moral things as well. No matter who you are and what you've done, you can always find someone who's worse than you. Even in prison, there's this huge culture of even people, murderers, thieves, feeling justified as they look down on sex offenders. That, that there are always going to be someone you can look at and say, well, at least I'm not like them. We compare. And not only are our judgments and our views about other people normally comparative, in the large part, they're also normally superficial. That so much of our opinions and our views of people are based on, 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 on what they look like or where they're from or the things we can see about them. And even if it goes a bit deeper than that, it's still based on what they do and what their actions are and what they reveal about themselves. That no matter how hard we might try, we can never see the real person in anyone. We can never see everything. We are limited, completely limited as we, as we view people. What Paul is saying is that God doesn't do that. He doesn't just compare us to one another. He doesn't just look at the surface. He's in a position to see us completely clearly, to see our hearts, our desires, our motivations. He knows our every thought. And this is a really freeing truth, especially if you've been in a position or you are in a position where you feel like people are kind of judging you or looking down on you unfairly. Because... What Paul is saying is you can hold other people's opinions of you really, really loosely. Because it doesn't really matter. Because what the Bible teaches is there is a God who sees us completely and and even sees the parts of us that we hide from everyone else. The the, the things that we're ashamed of, the the brokenness, the the evil, the selfishness, all all of the rubbish that we have in us, there's a God who can see that and according to the Bible still loves us still loves us enough to send his son to die for us. To know that there is a God who knows you better than anyone else will ever know you and still loves you means that you can just hold loosely. When when someone's thinking something about you or saying something about you, their judgment doesn't matter. There's only one judgment matters and that is of God. But the flip side of that, if it's true that we know of ourselves, look, it doesn't really matter what people, what people think of us because the only person we're playing for is God, then the same would be true if we need to check our thoughts we're going to judge someone else. That the people we look down on or, or think, you know, they're a rubbish person, they shouldn't have done this, whatever, there is a God who knows them more than you do, who sees them more clearly than you do. And yet, as the Bible says, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is a God who loves sinners. 
That's Paul's first point. When, when we try to make ourselves feel smart by looking down on someone we feel is stupid or, 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 or someone who's kind of not wearing the right thing or doing the right thing or, or working the right kind of job or, or just stuffing up constantly, it's to say, look, it doesn't really matter what we think. Leave it to God. God is the only one who can judge. The second thing Paul says, the second truth he's trying to reveal to the Corinthians to cut away at their pride and their boasting is the fact that at the end of the day, there is nothing we can boast in. We have nothing we can boast in at all. If we look from verse 6, which will come up on the screen. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In verse 6 he's saying the reason he's saying this is that the people would have no chance to be puffed up, to have no sense that one is better than the other. And he, he shows this argument in the form of three questions. The first question he asks in verse 7 is, who sees anything different in you? He's saying to the Corinthians, look, you, you, know, you think you're better, What makes you better? What's the difference? What's this key thing that you've got that makes you different? He's asking that because normally the thing that we're the most proud of is likely to be the thing we look down on in other people. So if we are proud that we're a hard worker, we're going to look down on someone who's lazy. If we are proud that we're kind of smart and we've got it all figured out and we kind of understand things, we're going to look down on people that just don't seem to get it the way that we do, who can't figure it out the way that we can. If we're proud of the beliefs and the worldview that we've formed and think, you know, I've got this idea of how the world is that makes sense of everything and this person can't figure it out, we're going to look down on them. If we feel like I'm, I'm beating this area of sin, I'm kind of good in this area and I'm proud of the work I've done to get that and this person isn't, we're going to look down on them. In the Corinthians' case, it's this idea of wisdom and eloquence that because they're so wise and eloquent, Paul's not wise, he's not that impressive, he doesn't speak with the fancy words, he's not as good. So Paul's saying, what is it? What is it for you that that you're proud of, that you think makes you better than other people? And then he asks this next question, regarding that thing, what do you have that you did not receive? He's saying, this thing that makes you better, do you actually have anything you didn't get from somewhere else? And it's a rhetorical question, and we can see that by the, the final question that he asks, to show that the answer of this question, what do you have that you did not receive, is nothing, is that he says, if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, like I said before, um, I've been playing netball recently. Two netball illustrations one week kind of shows that that's the main thing I've got going on at the moment. Um, (laughs) But for five or six weeks now, we've been playing netball on a Monday night. It's been great fun. And it's a great game. I went in very sceptical about it, I have to admit. But I've been won over. But, and one of the reasons I've been won over is that I've got a claim I can make about netball that I can't make for any other sport, which is I am undefeated. I'm a winner. We've played six weeks of netball now, sometimes against teams that have been playing for years, and no one has managed to beat me. It's, it's amazing. Dozens of people have tried, and they can't win, no matter what they do. Um, it, it's just been great. I'm a winner. I'm a winner when it comes to netball. Now, even as I say that, I feel a bit awkward because there are people in this room who are in the team and they know very well 
that the fact that we've been winning has actually very little to do with me. Um, I've just been kind of rolling around on the ground in like pain and fumbling the ball. The reason we've been winning is we've got Gav. And if you don't know Gav, he's our seven-foot pastor. He's got arms as long as legs. And, and because we've got Gav on our team, uh, you can be anywhere on the field and just kind of lob the ball generally towards the circle. And he'll just kind of catch it and then just drop it in the hoop. And it just means that it, like, you feel bad for the other team because it's not... It's, Nepal's meant to be like all the passing and chest passes and stuff and bounces. You just lob it to Gav, drop it in, and we win. And so at the end of a game, despite winning, I, if I went up to the other team and I was like, yeah, in your face, like, you lose, I'm the best, you're the worst, quit playing netball. Um, if they didn't start crying at that savage um, takedown, they'd probably say to me, look, yeah, you won, but it, what's nothing to do with you? You've got Gigantor on the team. Like, <laughs> that's why it's all happening. And Paul, what Paul is saying to these people is this, look, Stop being so proud. Stop being so full of yourself. There is, nothing, there is no claim that you've got that didn't really come from somewhere else. Just stop and think about how much of who you are, what you're like, what your life is like, that had absolutely nothing to do with you. Anything regarding your, your, your physical being, from, from the way your body is to the way your brain is, is just determined at birth by, by your DNA and things that came before what you look like, how your body metabolizes, how it responds to exercise, how kind of quick your brain is. You didn't choose that. It just, you just were born with it. Cultural things, like what you perceive to be good and normal and acceptable, is mostly grounded in what culture you're in in the most formative years of your life. Your education. No one chose where they went to primary school. Um, and in a lot of cases, didn't have a whole lot of choice about high school. And even when you went to university, most people were quite limited. There's nothing to do with, necessarily with us that we went to those places. Every single person in this room's financial situation is somewhat impacted by the fact that you're in Australia right now, not in Ethiopia. Whether you're born here, whether you came here, whatever, there are certain advantages you get from being here that people in other parts of the world just do not have. And, and even if you feel like, you know, maybe you've, you've come from just, you know, just humble circumstances and you've, you've had a hard run and you've kind of made something of yourself, even in that, just having, having the capability of what it takes to persevere and having that kind of that drive, you don't necessarily get from birth. And what the Bible says about all of these things is that this is a gift. God is a gift-giving God and every good thing comes from him. That there is nothing we can say about us or our lives that we kind of owe ourselves credit for. Just so much of the most significant life-shaping things are out of our control. And beyond that, the, the most fundamental part of Christianity is the truth that we've been given an amazing gift in Jesus. That we deserve nothing. We, didn't, we don't deserve, it. We don't deserve to, to, to be born and have, and have education and, and to, to look a certain way or do, do anything. But most of all, we do not deserve God to love us. Our lives are filled with compromise and sin and selfishness and God avoidance. And the heart of the message of Christianity is that despite the fact that we we're all on just a path heading towards hell, heading towards an eternity without God, that God came into this world in the person of Jesus and died for us 
and offered us forgiveness and love. And that if we have that, if we know that, that's because God has given us a gift. And it's a gift every step of the way. It's a gift from the fact that Jesus came 2,000 years ago and died, but it's a gift even that he's allowed you to see it. It has put you in an opportunity to understand this truth. And if you've been a Christian for a while and you've seen things in your life change, that maybe you're, you've become somehow less selfish or more self-controlled or, or more generous or more loving, that is a gift as well. If you believe the message of Christianity, if you believe the Bible, you're believing that you are the recipient of an amazing gift. An amazing gift in the person of Jesus and a myriad of other amazing gifts every day of our life. That if we've received something as a gift and the things that we love most in our lives were given to us from someone else, how could we, how could we use those to look down on other people? Paul is saying that the things that we boast in, the things that we're proud of, we need to recognize that they're not from us. The proper response to having something maybe that even someone else doesn't have is gratitude to God, not lording over them and boasting and looking down at them. So think, who is it you're prone to look down on? Is it someone with an annoying personality or someone who's somehow more awkward than you are? Is it the person who keeps stuffing up their life and even maybe stuffing up your life with the bad decisions that they make? Is it the person who keeps sinning in ways that you feel like you've got a handle of and you would never do what they're doing at the moment? Is it the person who doesn't work as hard as you? Is it the person who's not as generous as you are or doesn't give up as much of their time that you do? Paul is saying, what do you have that makes you different to them? Because that thing, it's been given to you, and so don't look down on them. That's the message of this verse here. See, Christians should be known for their humility. Jesus was known for his humility. Jesus was a guy who walked around, and, and in, in ancient Jewish culture, there was a really kind of strict ladder of who was where on the, on the ladder of society. And at the bottom, the people that anyone could look down on was the, was the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the drunks, And these are the people that felt safe to come to Jesus because they knew that in Jesus they had someone who would not look down on them. That's my hope for for what this church would be. If there was a picture of Sydney like that, I'd just love to see is that, that there is not a person in Sydney who wouldn't feel safe to come in here and rest assured that they would not be looked down upon. For, for anything, for, for where they are financially, for, for whether they've got a job or don't have a job, for where, for where they are regarding their sexuality or their life decisions, that if they came here, they would feel loved and accepted because this would be a room full of people who recognize that any good thing we have is a gift. We can be grateful to God, but we have no grounds ever to look down on someone else. No matter what we might have to be proud of, the best any Christian can ever say when they see anyone is, but for the, therefore the grace of God go I. That's the second thing Paul's saying, that we are the recipients of grace. The third truth that Paul is laying out in this verse, in this passage rather, is that Jesus comes to redefine what greatness is. The, the third truth which is going to turn the pride of the Corinthians on their head is this idea that Jesus redefines greatness. That with Jesus comes a whole new set of values about what a great life looks like. About what is worth achieving, what is impressive. 
See, the Corinthians have got it wrong. They, they've made the confusion that, that because they're, they're wise and they're impressive and they're eloquent and well-off, that's a kind of sign that they've got it right. And because Paul doesn't have these things, that he's got it wrong. And the way Paul rebukes them is just to expose himself and what his life is like. So if you pick it up from verse 10, Paul says this. He says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Let's reflect on this for a moment. Here is Paul, one of the most, probably the most influential Christian to have ever lived, the most read author to have ever written, talking about what 20 years at this point of following Jesus is looking like. And he's writing these words about his last 20 years to a church that is by and large comfortable and confident in themselves and would say, we're at a great church. That's what the Corinthians would be. And, then, and Paul writes this. And he writes it gently. He doesn't just attack them. He's just saying, just, 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 he's humbly saying, just look at, look at my life. And it's not a pretty picture. Paul's life is marked by weakness. His, his life is marked by people speaking bad things about him. They didn't have this great reputation where people like, oh, Paul is such an amazing guy. He had people saying rubbish stuff about him. Uh, it, it seems from this that most of the time... He didn't even have enough money to eat and to drink. He didn't have big sources of income at all. He didn't have nice clothes. Uh, He didn't have a home or own property. He had to work hard every day of his life with his own hands. And doing this, he had people persecuting him, actually trying to stop him doing what he needed to do. And his summary is that he is like the scum of the world. Imagine being able to sum your life up like that after 20 years of following Jesus. Yeah, I'm still just the scum, scum of the world. The Corinthians are proud of how impressive they are, and, and, and Jesus says, uh, Paul just says, look at me. Like, this, is, this, is, this is what my life is like. Now, Jesus says, no servant is greater than his master. A follower of Jesus is someone who is following a person who is lowly. Jesus was like Paul in so many ways. He was homeless. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. Um, he had a hard go of things. And in the end, he was killed in this humiliating death on a cross, alone. And Jesus says, come and follow me. And he said, take up your cross and follow me. He's basically saying, follow me the whole way. And Paul has done this. He said, yep, I'm going to follow you. Paul geared his whole life around seeing people come to know Jesus, loving them, helping them, no matter what the cost. See, when, when we aim for, for a life which is going to be impressive and we're going to have money and, and comfort and, and power and, and influence, and at the same time say we're following Jesus, we've got two completely different things going on. 
This is the problem the Corinthians made. They thought they could have Jesus and, and, and also pursue this being impressive as well. And Paul's saying it's not how it works. They're completely at odds. Because when Jesus comes, he's, he's got this new standard of what greatness is. And greatness is sacrifice. Greatness is service. And that's going to mean putting yourself in a situation where others are going to look at you and be like, I don't want that. That's rubbish. I'm better than them. I think, for, for me, understanding this is kind of what opened my eyes to the fact that, that Christianity is, is real. Um, what I mean by that is I grew up in a church um, and, and, and knowing the Bible my whole life, and I, it wasn't until I was 17 that I think I got that it was real. I think I would even say beforehand that I, that I, knew, it was, that I knew it was true, um, that, that the facts of Christianity were true and I believed them. But when I was 17, um, I was at this point in my life where I was actually considering just kind of saying, look, the Christianity thing's not for me. Um, and, and one of the main things going on in my head was I was, you know, working out what life was going to look like in the future. And I looked at, um, I remember looking and thinking about my, my parents' generation of Christians who, and I think I was wrong in this, but at the time I perceived just to be mostly people who were like everyone else except that they went to church on a Sunday. And I just remember thinking, if that's what being a Christian is, discomfort plus one less day of a weekend... Um, it's like, what, really, what's the point? Like, there was just nothing kind of in that the way that I'd seen it to that point. And when I was 17, I went and spent five weeks with my auntie and uncle, who were missionaries for about 15 years in a, a tribe called the Mercy People in rural Ethiopia, 24 hours' drive from the nearest city. And they were in the middle of nowhere, and for five weeks I looked at these people's life. And I knew they'd been over there for, for, for years, but I didn't have any notion of just what they were going through. As, you, as you're driving with them through these rubbish roads to where they live, you notice that the car's got bullet holes because they've been shot at. In the time they've been there, they've contracted malaria. They've had, their house gets robbed any time they get something nice, so they just gave up getting nice things because they just knew if you put something nice, it's going to get stolen. Living in the middle of nowhere where, where there's not good schools for the children, where, where the flour that they used to make bread every day had just bugs in it constantly where there was uh, people just opposing what they were doing at every kind of level of how the government was set up there, where they were kind of targeted and, and, and not wanted by heaps of people in the tribe, where even back home, they had, yeah, they had some friends and family that supported them, but even amongst our extended family, we had, you know, we've got aunties and uncles that, that thought they're stupid for moving there, that think they're, they're completely mad for giving up their jobs and their home in Australia to go over. I remember just being there and thinking, like, it's a bit exotic to be here for five weeks, but to be here for 15 years would be a nightmare. And the time I spent with them, I just I realized that they were joyful and happy to be doing it, and they did not want to go back to Australia because they had decided they're going to live purely to see people know Jesus, to be a light to this, this tribe of, of 2,000 people and help them, help them understand how Jesus is, is worth having. And that they would lay down everything, their, their lives, their, their, their possessions, their time, their, their reputation, everything for the sake of this. And I felt like I was, I was lucky to... It was like I had five weeks with, with a 21st century Apostle Paul in, in my uncle and seeing what he was doing over there. And I realized that Christianity is real because it changes people. Not just in like 
what maybe your week looks like, but it, it, it changes your whole value of what's important. It changes what's important from just being kind of just climbing, climbing a corporate ladder or making money or being successful or anything else to being what's important is following Jesus and serving him. And following Jesus and serving him will, will definitely, in, in multiple areas, put you in positions where you're going to be less well-off than you would have been otherwise. And particularly when it comes to what people think of you, that people will not be as impressed with you and you'll have people looking down on you. Following Jesus will mean making decisions that aren't financially in your best interest, but are, 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 are more motivated by, by seeing people helped and loved and brought into the kingdom of God. Following Jesus more and more in Australia over the next 10, 15 years is going to mean having to stand up for truths that will just be will appear to everyone around you to be backwards and naive and stupid and ridiculous. That you will be known as the stupid Christian. And, and you'll, there will be people that are going to judge you and look down on you because of that. And unless we, we hear these words and we, we, get, we understand and, and take on the fact that following Jesus is going to mean deviating from the path of being respectable and well-liked and having it easy and being impressive and having something you can boast in to really just valuing what it is that Jesus wants, we're going to keep running into trouble. And I still feel like we can get shocked when, when, we, when we see this a fork in the road that thinks, well, I want to follow Jesus, but it's going to be hard. Surely that can't be right. And we try to compromise and compromise and compromise. But Jesus redefines greatness. That there is greatness in the, in the path of servanthood and of sacrifice. We need to know that not only is it okay to be looked down upon, but in Jesus' kingdom, pursuing the sort of greatness that he advocates, just following him and trying to live a life like him, which is the greatest way to live, is not going to be the view of greatness that the world has. But it is worth it because in him we have joy that is just more than anything else, we, we're living the way we're meant to live, living the purpose of life and awaiting an eternity in the kingdom of God, reigning with Jesus that makes it worthwhile. We need to know that and we need to believe that. And if we're okay with that and we're pursuing a life that means that we're going to be getting ready for people to look down on us, then we as well need to know that if we're going to be getting ready to be looked down upon, what grounds do we have now to look down on anyone else? We need to be the people that are most sensitive to those in our society who are looked down upon. Now, I'm going to spend some time praying um, about these things as we reflect on these truths that only God is the one who is in a position to judge. That everything we have in our life that we, we might be pleased with or that we might think makes us great in some way or another is a gift that all we can do is be thankful for. And that following Jesus has a whole new picture of greatness which is completely different to what this world thinks. And I'm just going to pray for that now, and I hope that you pray with me, pray this over yourself. And then after I finish praying, I'm going to go, and there's going to be a few minutes that you can continue praying in your own, in your own mind and your own heart. That you might want to reflect on what this means for you, whether you're aligning with this. If you're somebody who's not a Christian, does this fit with what you've, what you've thought about Christianity before? And then after a few minutes of that, Jez is going to get up and let us know what we can do next. But, but firstly, pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word and for your, your servant Paul and the way that he just sheds light on this issue for the Corinthians, which is so much an issue for us. And we just want to repent knowing that Lord, me personally, um, and I'm sure all of us, look down on others. But that we, we look to things in our life that we're proud of and we think that that makes us great uh, in, in some way or another. That we try to make ourselves feel better by looking down on other people. And I just pray that, that you would make us more and more sure of you and the fact that it is you that your opinion that matters most and that we would see you as a God who sees through people, sees the depths of their hearts and loves them. That we would recognize the good gifts that you give us, the gifts that make us who we are, the gifts we have in our life, and, and most of all, the gift of the gospel as something to be thankful for not something to lord over others. And Lord, I pray that as we continue to follow you and as this church continues to follow you, that we would be, we would be people who want to follow in the path of Jesus. Even if that's the path of poverty or the path of the idiot or, or whatever it is, we would do that and we would do it joyfully knowing that in Jesus we have more than we could get anywhere else. And lastly, Lord, I just pray for this church. I pray that, that there would never be a day that someone walks in here and they feel like they're looked down upon by those in this room. That we would all recognize the absolute depths of our, of our need and our brokenness apart from you. That we have nothing but you to be thankful for. And that we would love and welcome accept anyone, and accept anyone we can and show them the love that you have for them. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.